Welcome to Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast. This is your show host, Kiara Fulmore, and I am a proud school psychologist. This podcast is dedicated to helping women of color navigate the field of school psychology. On our podcast, we will have invited talks and open dialogues exploring various topics within the field. Our podcast serves as a knowledge sharing tool to help women of color as they grow in their practice. Here on Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast, we believe that our collective wisdom can support our overall well-being. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy the show. All right. Hey, everybody. It's Kiara Fulmore again, and I am here for the third episode of Dear School Psych Sister. I have wonderful, wise women here from all walks of life. And I'm just so super hyped because they all came to share their story. And there's a lot of knowledge here. I can't do all these women justice in in my introduction of them. So what I would like is for them to just say a little spill about themselves and we'll let them go in order. It's six women. Yeah, my name is Shana Jones. Uh, My pronouns are she and her. Um, I'm a specialist level school psychologist in my second year of practice, and I work in Washington State. Um, My name is Danette Sanders. I am in my eighth year as a school psychologist, uh, also specialist level in uh, Southern California in the Inland Empire region. Hi, my name is Izzy Alvarado. This is my second year as the district coordinator of school psychology at Waukegan Public Schools in Illinois. We are located halfway between Milwaukee and Chicago. Good evening, my name is Cornell Grisby. I'm a school psychologist in Georgia. I'm a full-time entrepreneur and education consultant. Hello, my name is Valerie Reese. I am um, a school psychologist in South Carolina, but I am also the owner of Better Days Counseling Services. Um, I am a licensed psychoeducational specialist and my um, practice is a um, behavioral um, and mental health counseling practice for children. Hi everyone, my name is Dr. Candace Aston, and I am an assistant professor at Towson University for their school psychology training program. And I also serve as a practitioner and um, for several districts in the Maryland area. All right, thank you all for giving your spill about yourselves. Like I said, a lot of knowledge in this panel. And as I've stated before, we just want to give everybody like a brief interview, I would say, with all of the ladies so that we can get to understand more about their career, their profession, because we all have been in that space where we're like, what should we do with our lives? But we just want to show you that there's a lot of different things that you can do in the field of school psychology. And I think that these women can attest to that. The first question that I have, and this is to the group for anyone to answer, and I will call on people accordingly. How did you obtain your current position? How did you get to where you are? And if you want to reiterate exactly where you are again, I think that the audience would be very appreciative. Okay, um, I'll go ahead and jump on in here. Um, I actually 
interviewed twice for the position that I'm currently in. I was in an independent study program um, charter school before, and I was there for about three years. But then I started becoming concerned about uh, marketability as, you know, I was considering getting married and potentially moving from my from where I was, um, I didn't want to feel pigeonholed into the charter school system, especially independent study. Um, and uh, my supervisors were great. They let me go to virtually any training I wanted to, but I was the first full-time psych that they had hired. So I really didn't have a community. I didn't really know, yes, I can go to a training, but where, on what, how? And so that's why I wanted to transition back to the traditional district. And so one of my girlfriends who I went to uh, grad school with called me and let me know. And I interviewed. um, And interestingly enough, I lost the job to another friend of mine who I went to high school, undergrad and grad school with. Um, But then there was someone retiring a few months later. And so I actually kind of had the benefit of having interviewed there before, being familiar with the interview process. They were in the process of transitioning to the PSW model. So the first time I interviewed, I was just kind of doing some brief introductory what is PSW? What do I need to know? But not having had the benefit of a couple of months, I was able to do more research. And even though I wasn't able to implement PSW at the charter school where I was, I was familiar enough with it that that gave me a little bit more teeth to my um, to my application and my interview. I can go ahead and share. Um, So I'm Candice Asin and I'm an assistant professor. Um, Prior to kind of starting um, or getting started in academia, I was really on the fence as I was finishing up my um, doctoral internship um, as part of my um, training. I I got a PhD in school psych. Um, And I was on the fence because I really wanted to still be a practitioner. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to kind of give up that face-to-face experience with kids. Um, But I decided while I was finishing up my internship to just kind of go and see what happens. Um, And I ended up um, getting a couple interviews and then um, receiving the offer to um, teach at Towson. Um, One thing that I liked about Towson um, University was that they allow um, faculty members to have one day a week in their whatever field that they are in. So um, initially when I accepted a position, I also started as a practicing school psychologist one day a week. So I kind of got um, kind of both angles of kind of working with face-to-face in the schools, but also kind of teaching and things like that. One thing that I would say would be really helpful to um, people who are trying to pursue academia straight from grad school is to kind of make sure that um, you have um, some publications and things just to keep your options open. Um, Because when you're applying to jobs for um, as an assistant professor or tenure track, um, most of them required at least three publications to just kind of be considered for the application. So even if you're on the fence, like I was, I would say kind of just making sure that you have um, the prereqs just in case you might want to pursue that. Um, And I think, you know, one thing about academia is like research and kind of what is it like and things like that. Um, And that's where it um, 
reaching out to other faculty, faculty of color, and kind of learning their experiences and hearing them can be really, really helpful to kind of help decide that. Because for me, I didn't know anyone in academia in terms of like personal and my family or things like that. So it was kind of this scary place that I thought was very prestigious. And I was like, I don't really know if that's for me. But once kind of getting into it and talking to more people, it um, seemed like a much more kind of viable career choice. So I wouldn't be in my current position if I hadn't been accepted as a practicum student in my hometown. Um, it's a very large school district. It's one of the 10 largest districts in Illinois. Um, and unlike everyone else in my grad program, I chose to do my practicum and my internship both years in the same district, which they advise you not to, right? Um, and then I stuck around for three years because I really liked it. And then I ventured away <laughs> um, to see how, you know, surrounding districts worked. And I just had to come back because, you know, I'm a hometown girl. So I came back and um, the second year I was there, we were still coordinatorless. There's 30 school psychologists in the district and we had nobody leading us for a, quite a few years. And if we did have a coordinator, they would only stay one year. So one day the superintendent walked in, this was two years ago, into our first school psychology department meeting of the year. And she's like, where's your coordinator? And everyone just stops. And, you know, the nearest person is like, well, we still don't have one. And she's like, is there anyone here you guys would trust or knows? that has the credentials because in the state of Illinois, you have to have an administrative degree and a school psychology degree. Well, not in the state of Illinois, I'm sorry, in um, our district in order to be that coordinator. And literally the entire room, there was 30 school psychologists turn around and stare at me and point at me. And they're like, she has the credentials and we trust her. So she's like, apply for the position. I went through the, um, I went through the interview process and I got the job and this is now my second year and I have I'm thoroughly enjoying it um I'm not a I am not a special education director I am directly under them and I only oversee school psychologists which I'm so thankful for so um I actually created the what I do on a daily basis I kind of created that from the time that I left the schools working full time. And so a typical day for me would be I'm kind of going into my office where I own my edu education consulting company. It's called Reach AKG Education Consultants, LLC, super long name. And um, I have, um, we support students with enrichment and remediation. So we do tutoring as well as um, virtually and in person with COVID now. And we also created a virtual uh, learning workspace for kids to come who are kind of registered in their school district, but needing a, the additional assistance and kind of targeting the students who have diagnosis orders and maybe um, they wouldn't be very successful at home by themselves. Um, and so a lot of what I do there differs. And then I've um, started doing a lot of professional development for individuals who own their own um, kind of charter schools or smaller schools, academies within my um, local area and also internationally now with COVID and everything being virtual. So. Uh, after I left graduate school, um, well, I went to graduate school, got my doctorate um, straight out of undergrad. I went straight into my doctoral program and I did practicum and realized I didn't want to um, work in the schools probably like two months in. 
but I had to finish my degree. So I did practicum, I did advanced prac and decided to opt out of the EDS because I didn't want to work in the schools, just kind of stay focused on my um, dissertation and getting that done. And once I did a year after my pre-doctoral internship, I started my education consulting company and have been working in that um, field primarily. I also, like I said earlier, I um, do psychological evaluations and I do cognitive behavior therapy in a pediatric psychology practice um, and also do the evaluations in my local school district um, for contract testing, kind of on a case by case, depending on if I want to take an additional case at the time. So naturally, all of what I do now kind of stem from me recognizing very early in practicum that year that I didn't really want to be in the schools full time, mm-hmm. but um, love all that. So, yeah. I'm seeing a lot of awareness and hearing your um, testimonies about how you got to where you are. It seems like there it's there was definitely a passion in every when every one of you spoke, but there was also just this awareness of like what's going on around me <laughs> um, that made you all propel into um, your specific path. And I do adore the fact that you knew. Um, Dr. Grisby, that this is what you wanted to do when you continue to go on with that. I have Miss Reese here, Ms. Valerie. Hello. Um, so I guess my 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 entry into my current um, position probably looks a little different because I started out um, in clinical um, mental health. I started out working at an inpatient hospital. Um, as a therapist at an inpatient hospital for children. Um, And the inpatient hospital was residential, so the children lived there. Um, And it was also level six, um, which um, um, is like the highest severity um, level for children and kind of got disheartened with it. Um, And that kind of drove, pointed me in the direction of going into school psychology. So when I got to the point where I wanted to venture back out of the school district and to be able to address a lot of the issues I was seeing that were outside of the school, um, it was an easier transition for me to transition back into a clinical setting because that's kind of, that was how I began. Um, and so um, in the state of South Carolina, um, School psychologists can be licensed to practice outside of the school district um, and can be licensed to do counseling um, with children as well as families. And it's a it's a billable Medicaid service. Um, So that allowed me to be able to open my own practice and to be able to do um, a lot of the clinical aspects to address some of the issues um, outside of the school setting. I think this is a perfect segue because you all were given, you know, some of your responsibilities. So the next question actually asks about um, your responsibilities. And I will be honest and say, I've always wondered about um, clinicians um, and I guess academia, but specifically I've, I've wondered for clinicians if there was duties or if there were other duties that I'm not used to doing. Like I know that in the school system, there's like Medicaid and just like insurance. So um, Dr. Grisby and um, Ms. Reese, I'm sure you could speak to that. And I'd also like to hear from you, um, Dr. Aston, about what are those things um, in academia that you, you really, really love? Um, the responsibilities in the um, in my private practice are very, very different from my responsibilities within the school setting. Um, 
within my private practice, I am responsible for everything, the running of the business. So everything from um, diagnosing, treatment planning, um, as well as therapy, um, therapy notes, therapy updates, Medicaid billing, um, all of that um, falls under the private practice if you are going to be um, a practitioner that does actually bill Medicaid, which I do. Um, so it looks a lot different, a lot more of the administrative um, side than um, would happen in the school setting, just strictly because um, I'm not only in the clinical setting, but because I also run my own business. So a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that when we're working in the school setting administration or our supervisors or people at the district office are doing, um, you're responsible for doing all of those things when you run your own, own business. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the biggest things that I know in private practice is a lot of the administrative duties, like, um, was, was that Ms. Reese that was speaking? I'm trying to make sure I'm looking at the right name. Yes, that was Ms. Reese. Okay. So um, yes, the administrative duties is definitely a lot of those. And when it comes to just the, from the process of having a child or a parent contact the office to completing the evaluation, there's a lot of hours that can be spent doing things. And so I've learned to automate. And I think that's been really helpful and something that I definitely didn't have to do as much in the schools because the kids are there. So you just get your cases and you pull them, you know, com communicate with the parents and the staff. Um, and so I think the, the billing and um, kind of even building the clientele, I think, is definitely something that I'm sure uh, Ms. Reese could speak more about um, as far as starting your own business. But naturally, as a school psychologist in the schools, I think that's one of the biggest differences is our clients are the students and they're already there. They have to be there. And so when you work outside, it's important that you kind of niche yourself so that you build a client base that's revolving and it keeps that income coming so that your business can stay open. Um, so that that is something I would um, second and like to just add with regards to that. I've always wondered about the line because I know that there's a boundary as far as who can be your clientele or if, am, am I mistaken and there's no boundary if you work for a school system? I guess that's, that would be something that I want to pose to both of you, um, Valerie and to Dr. Grisby. I'll, I'll just be brief. Um, from my experience, because I do contract tests in the county where my practice is located. And so um, literally the headquarters or the central office is like five minutes away from where the pediatric psychology office I work at and the education consulting company that I own. They're all in a, in a one mile radius, almost one or two mile radius. So I typically, if there's a student who, when I'm working in the schools doing contract testing, um, I have to complete the case before I can see the child in private practice for anything. Um, Cause I've had clients that I've gotten from my school system um, where I do contract testing for therapy because they don't necessarily offer that in the same capacity. So as long as my case is complete, I can see the child outside um, of the school system for other services that I offer with my business or with the private practice that I work at. And so I don't know if that's like a, um, lead psychologist case by case, mine doesn't seem to be bothered with it, but um, that's the experience that I've had. So Miss um, Reese, definitely I'd be interested to hear how yours is, um, where you are located. Um, my experience um, has been, uh, I guess about the same. Um, I actually, um, probably a little bit more stringent though, because I am actually um, not allowed to see children who go to school in the district that I work for. Um, so if they are seeking counseling, um, I'm not allowed to see them personally. Um, I have um, contract employees who work with me who are allowed to see them, but I cannot personally see a child who attends the school district that I work for. I was actually looking at South Carolina as a place to practice and that 
specific credential was one that I was looking into, but I also noted that you cannot um, see a kid if they are um, within your district there. So I wanted to ask about that, but I'm glad that you also brought that up, Dr. Grisby, about being able to complete your cases and then seeing the child. I think that's good. I'm wondering about Dr. Aston. I know I have mentors that are in the ivory tower so we say so i'm definitely wondering about your responsibilities and if you do have anything that you're specifically proud of i would like to know that i know the ladies would love to hear that as well sure um so as a professor um working in academia the three main things are teaching scholarship and service and that is what you're evaluated on when you go up for tenure so um, in terms of teaching, you when you get your job, you'll usually be given a course load. So sometimes you're on like a 3-3, which means you teach three, three credit classes in the fall and three three credit classes in the spring. So I'm at Towson, um, which is not considered a research one or a R1 institution. It's a R2. So um, that means it's not as research intensive. It's more teaching intensive. So I have a teaching load of four, three, which means I teach four classes, one semester and three, the other. Um, so teaching, um, that's kind of self-explanatory. In terms of service, um, as a professor, you have to be on various committees. Um, usually you can find things that you're a little bit passionate about. So I have served as a diversity fellow, I hold um, a multicultural brown bag series where we bring in um, people who are doing research in regards in the area of diversity. So um, I'm, I'm able to kind of like tie in my passions and all of these things. So my research is around cultural responsiveness, um, specifically kind of working with black children, black and brown children, and finding ways to kind of be um, of greater support to them within the school system. So that's my research. However, I get to then teach classes that also connect to that. I teach a multicultural class. I teach a trauma um, uh, a trauma slash social justice class. So I'm able to kind of tie it in. Um, so I think that's one thing that's helpful um, for me because if I wasn't passionate, some of these things would feel very like labor intensive. Um, but for me, um, it really kind of brings joy for me to be able to teach about things I'm passionate about. Um, the other thing in terms of things I might be proud of or something that I really enjoy is in um, school psych, I think we all know diversity is a big issue. Um, and when I first came to uh, my university, there wasn't much diversity. Um, but, you know, when we get a seat at the table, we get to kind of help influence. So since being there, um, the, the numbers of diverse students have increased. And with that kind of came an opportunity to serve as a mentor for those students. And um, after my first year, every year, except for COVID um, this past year, um, I have took um, the Black students in the program to um, the Association of Black um, Psychologists, ABSI. We have gone to the conference and been able to kind of not only um, uh, present on various research projects that we worked on, but just engage in the culture and engage in Black psychology. So that for me, I would think is a major kind of thing that um, I'm, I'm proud of is that I was able to kind of bridge a gap in school psych that's not always there. Um, a lot of times people of color in school psych programs feel disconnected. And um, as a 
um, faculty member of color, we kind of sometimes have that responsibility. That's not necessarily going to get me to tenure, but it kind of really makes it worthwhile that I'm in that space. Thank you so much, Dr. Aston. Actually, as you are speaking, I think I'm, I'm loving all of this. I'm also wondering about the practitioner perspective. So I know we have Izzy on here and we also have Shayna and Danette. There's always this, um, like you kind of alluded to, the research, the practice gap, <laughs> um, as far as what our experiences are, um, in the school districts, but you're doing you're doing really good work and critical work in order to identify what those challenges are, especially with culturally responsive intervention. I'm just wondering for some of our practitioners, um, for Shana, Dennett, um, especially Izzy as a person who is a director, like what are those things that you're seeing um, that you have tried to those small changes that you tried to make to bridge, I guess the the research to practice gap. I'll start with you, Shana. I wanna hear what your perspective is as the early career professional. Uh, yeah, so my position is sort of unique in my district. I actually support um, only a developmental preschool program. So um, I'm working with uh, some of our youngest learners. Um, I do a lot of work with kiddos that are transitioning from birth to three services and, and are gonna be um, introduced to school-based services for the first time. So I definitely love that I have the opportunity to give kiddos and their families a, a solid foundation and a good first experience um, with the special education system. But I do notice that sometimes, um, you know, with all of our knowledge about early intervention and how important it is and how effective it can be, um, that sometimes it is challenging to get some of what we know to be best practice um, translated into effective and sustainable practice in schools where we know that resources can be limited. Um, and so some of the things that I see are just like the inconsistency with like the number of preschool programs we can have open at any time because, um, you know, funding may be inconsistent um, or, you know, we may have a certain social emotional curriculum that we're able to pilot for, uh, you know, a short period of time, but then there's no money to be able to continue that in future years, you know, even if we do have evidence to show that that's effective. So those are just a couple of, of quick examples of, of ways that I see that playing out in, in my specific role. Um, but I do think as school psychologists, we have a great opportunity um, to be able to collaborate with teachers and families and, and all the other folks that we work with in schools to try and um, make up with for some of that um, with all the knowledge that we have and, and collaborating, collaborating together in like a team-based um, space. Yeah, if I, if I may, um, I really like what um, you're saying about that taking what we know to be best practices for interventions and implementing them has been one of the most difficult things to, to do. Um, so for me, one of the things that, one of the things that was frustrating was when I started in my newest district, or I've been here for six years now, but when I started in the district, um, they would hold the SST meetings or the step team meetings without me. And then I'd be handed a stack of 10 referrals for evaluations and only one or two of those kiddos 
would qualify. And it was a huge amount of work with a very low return on the investment because then everyone's frustrated and saying, well, I really thought he would qualify and really having to point them back to, well, what were the interventions? What have you tried? And then saying, okay, well, with this evaluation that I've done, what can we say we know are his strengths and weaknesses and how can we now work on teaching him in a way that he can understand. So one of the things that I really did, and I got a lot of pushback from this, from my admin, I got a lot of pushback from this from other psychs on uh, on the team, was I carved out time and I go to every single step SST meeting, every single one. Um, and for me, that's something, because I'm at a K through eight, um, I am now, getting into that sweet spot where a lot of the reevaluations are kiddos that I did the initials on. So I know these kids. And then not only do I know these kids from having done their initial, I know these kids from having sat in on their step meetings and really getting to know, okay, what are the interventions that are being implemented? How are they um, responding to them? What is the data? What are their data points? And really being able to have a really good understanding of that kiddo even before we get to the point where we say, okay, yes, this child is a good candidate for special education, specialized academic instruction. So that's one of the things that, yes, for me, it was a lot of work on the front end, but I found that on the back end, it really pays off because there have been lots of students who we've been able to, I've been able to really push those those tiered interventions and really work closely with my intervention teachers, with my RSP teachers to figure out what are the resources that we have available and how can we make sure that we are giving them their tier two and three interventions that these students need so they can be successful without getting to that point of saying, okay, they now require specialized academic instruction. So that's one of the things that I have been able to really implement. And again, being lucky enough to be at this one of the same schools for the duration of the time I've been here has really been helpful for me as well. And I would say for my kiddos. I like that. I like that um, using what you, you getting the most and using what you have. I think that that goes a lot of, a long way because we we the school system historically has been underfunded. So I do like this resourcefulness that you're talking about, Danette. Um, Izzy, I, I really want to hear what you have to say. I know that you are someone who are super is supervising school psychologists. Yes. Um, so I oversee 30 school psychologists across 20 buildings. Um, I see my role. Yeah, I provide PD. I keep budgets, but I see myself more as like a liaison between the buildings and the psychs or between even the schools and the community. Right. Um, so just in this year and a half, um, well, honestly, yeah, two years, the changes I've already seen, um, I'm the first Latina in the position and my mentor was the first black woman in the position. So I see just when I'm at the hiring table, um, I'm, we have a more diverse hi hiring um, pool to choose from. Um, 
it's kind of unheard of to have five bilingual school psychologists on a staff. And I managed to do that um, in just that one year of hiring um, our quote unquote diversity rate went up. And that's just because I was at the recruiting table, right? Um, I really um, managed to bridge the community voice. Um, these are my tax dollars as well, right? So I want to be very careful with, our, with my money because when I'm but when I'm balancing my budget for work, I need to think about the taxes I pay. Do I want my taxes to go up? If the answer is no, well, I'm going to try to either find PD or something that's either free or cheap. Um, something that I've really been able to do is hold um, special education um, disproportionalities um, accountable. Um, I'm holding our school psychologists accountable. I hate seeing this, but sometimes they are the quote unquote gatekeeper. I hate that term. However, sometimes the school psychologists are, right? Um, there are disproportionalities in my district, just how they are nationwide. And I'm in a position where I can help um, lower those disproportionalities. And that's actually my favorite part. This year, I've really have focused on um, the ED label, right? Um, emotional disability is what we call it in Illinois. And um, our black boys are, it's very disproportional for them. I think they have an eight time higher rate of being identified with that. So what did I do? I, I changed our um, eligibility paperwork. You now have to look at cultural differences between the school um, staff and people on the team and the child. Um, you, my psychologists also have to talk to me and, and go through the eligibilities for not just ED, but also intellectual disability because that's another label um, category um, that is also very disproportionate. So when they do have a potential um, initial of an ID or ED student, we're having that conversation. Why? What did you collect? What tools did you utilize? What is the history? Did you rule out X, Y, and Z? Um, and that's just that extra layer because I actually want to see those numbers get lowered, right? I'm taking notes and I always take notes because I feel like it helps me in the conversation just to kind of connect the dots. And I love it. I'm thinking about like the different, so it's all of you come from different um different paths within the field, but it's so interesting the talk, the change talk that's happening. And that even in early career, Shana, I mean, we, you talk about these things that you see and you're aware of, but going all the way up to, I guess, where you're a professor, or administrator, or a clinician, there's things, little small things that you can do in order to affect change. And it seems like, from what I'm hearing, we have a lot of passionate people here who are able to just do little things. Um, and I'm so excited. I think it's all great to just hear your dedication, everyone's dedication to the field as far as cultural responsiveness is concerned, because that was also something that I noted as a theme. Does anyone, okay, Dr. Aston, I saw you, I saw you um, wanted to speak. Yeah, I just wanted to follow up um, 
in terms of what um, was just being spoken about in terms of um, black males and realizing that there's an issue and being so proactive. Um, I thought kind of what you were just saying um, about um, looking at the culture of the staff and then looking at the culture of the student um, is so great. And I always talk to my students, we see that um, there's that exclusionary criteria. Was there language differences? Was there cultural differences? And I think back to when I was um, a, a practicum student and I asked about that um, because I was at primarily African-American 99% schools, but it was never used, never talked about and the staff didn't reflect the student body. Um, and I, when I was asking my um, supervisor who was not a person of color about that, um, I was just told that's just something that you never check. And I think, you know, what's promising is that when we are getting these seats at the, um, these, um, when we do have a seat at the table, we are kind of able to disrupt the system and we're changing. So I just, it's very encouraging to hear. Yeah, I just wanted to echo what Dr. Afton and, and what Izzy were just saying and about how encouraging it is to hear, especially from the perspective of an early career professional who is, has, you know, the, the whole trajectory of my career laid out before me trying to figure out which direction I might want to go and, and thinking about, um, you know, the ways in which we can make the greatest impact for the people that need it the most. And I feel like, you know, maybe all of us can recall a time where we were trying to speak truth to power and we're told, you know, oh, we can't do anything about that or that's not within our purview. Um, but it's great to hear that at every level, you know, there's a little bit that everyone can do in order to, to make processes more equitable and to make sure that the cultural responsiveness is embedded at every level of our practice. Um, you know, whether that's the evaluation or just how we're interacting with families um, and students in general. So it gives me hope that when I eventually find myself in that position, that I'll be able to affect some change, even if I'm not the superintendent of the district or something like that. So I want to know, just because I hear in everyone's talk, I hear a lot of like self efficacy. I, I hear a lot of passion and it's just making me think, I know that we all are on these particular paths, but as Shana says, she's trying to figure out what path to go on. So I want to know, I know that everyone's in a position. I want to know, is it the final position or where you envision yourself? I know that, I mean, for me, I love growth and I'm a lifelong learner. So I'm just kind of curious. I know, um, Shana, you mentioned that you were exploring, but for any other people on the call who would just kind of like to talk about where they see themselves in five or 10 years. Okay. Um, five or 10 years. I, um, my private practice has very quickly become uh, a, a, a labor of love. It really has. And due to everything that is going on with COVID, it is really just like running rampant. It's like really out of control. It's a lot of referrals, a lot of requests. Um, so I really enjoy the fact that I can, as a school psychologist who does have the clinical mental health background, that I can kind of bridge the gap between those two for a lot of my families. A lot of the children that I see 
um, have behavior problems that are affecting them in the school or um, are um, diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder and need some behavior modification that can then help affect them in school. So I, I enjoy the fact that I can utilize both the clinical and the mental health side, and I'm sorry, the mental health and the school psych side and kind of bridge the gap um, for a lot of my families. Um, private practice is about to expand. Um, so currently in the process of hiring some other clinicians. Um, and I really want to get to the um, point where I can help kind of train um, more school psychologists to um, be able to address more of the mental health needs of our students. Because um, a lot of us don't have the mental health background. So that is foreign to a lot of school sites, but we're still being responsible being held responsible for being able to um, know these signs when we see them and how to address them appropriately within the school setting. Um, and um, I don't think that some of us are equipped um, for that. Um, so I really want to be able to help train school sites to um, be more aware of the mental health side, the mental health needs, and um, how to kind of short-term address those needs within the school setting. I like that so much. I think that's definitely necessary. I think it's always been interesting to me to um, the fidelity aspect of that. I think that practically as a practitioner, some people find it very hard and they say that it's not feasible, but I've always been interested in, in implementation science and just making it easier for educators and for teachers and for all staff administrators just to be able to carry out these interventions and these frameworks in a way that works for them um, that doesn't feel like it's burdensome. And so that background knowledge on mental health awareness is great. I, I love that. Danette, you, you also wanted to say something? Yes, um, Dr. Gushby, your journey is to a degree what I wish I had done. <laughs> Um, I, I really wish that I had the, the, the fortitude of, of myself to say, you know what, I don't know if I want to do the school thing, the school setting thing. Um, it's, it's, I've come full circle now, and I actually really enjoy the school setting. But earlier on in my career, I was going, I, I don't like this, but I didn't see a way out. I, I really saw you know, this is really niche. How, how can I generalize these skills and, and use them elsewhere? Um, and so just the more that I, I sit with it and I go, okay, well, what am I going to do in five or 10 years looking down the line? That education consultant part really always really speaks to me because my, one of my passions is helping parents understand the IEP process and their child's disability. Um, especially when I was at that charter school, a lot of those kiddos, they were at-risk youth who no one really understood why they had an IEP or if they had an IEP or what that meant. And the help they were getting was very minimal, if any, before they came to our program. And that kind of really made me see like, people really don't understand it. And so when I look at, you know, down the line, I, 
I really want to transition eventually out of the school system and really almost into an advocate type type position. I don't have my admin, my admin credential. I would love to be a program specialist, um, but the way my the way my student loans are set up, that's that's not on the docket right now. But really, being able to help others navigate is really what keeps calling to me. Yeah. So, like Danette, I will probably eventually just end up being a public servant as well. Um, and work for the community and be an advocate. Um, my short short term goal is. Um, to join the ranks of um, these doc, these wonderful doctors on our panel, um, I hope to obtain my doctorate in the next two within the next two years. Um, but my long term goal, you know, why not superintendent, right? Um, but if it doesn't happen, as long as I'm anywhere between where I currently am or and superintendent, I'll be fine as long as I'm creating that creating systemic changes for um, our black and brown students. Um, I am I do enjoy what I do now. So like someone was saying, um, I, I like what I'm doing. I'm okay staying here, but why not why not have that long-term goal why not have that dream like i can be a superintendent as well right um so our children see that that's an option as well um i've had a lot of people say like oh i didn't know we could be psychologists or oh you're an administrator i didn't know we had administrators that look like me so um why not i'd love to be a superintendent so those are my career goals um, just as I'm sitting here and listening to the discussion, I'm just struck by how listening to a lot of other folks on the panel who said their current position sounds a lot like what my short-term goals would be. And then listening to them to describe their long-term goals sounds like something that would be like a stretch goal for me at this point in time, just beginning my career. But um, just echoing what everyone else has said about wanting to find myself in a position that really allows me to advocate um, for students and, and their best interests. And I think doing so for, you know, students that would not otherwise have access to those services or services of that quality. And I think that's why I feel at this point in my career very strongly about continuing to work in the schools because I want to make sure that, you know, the students who may not otherwise have access to these services are able to get them. Um, so I think, yeah, in the long term, I would like to do something that would allow me to, to support um, folks in the community a bit more or bridge the gap between schools and the community and make that relationship a bit more harmonious. But right now I'm definitely enjoying my work in the schools. Yes, that is awesome. I'm also enjoying my work in the school. I think it's allowing those pathways to be carved out just naturally, to be honest. I mean, a school psych sister has been what I would say is a very much a passion for me. And I could see this being something that I would like to continue in whatever way possible. I've always been very keen on mentorship. I think that that's super important um, for everyone. And that representation is also very, very important. But just being able to serve, I think, the women who are caregivers. And so being able to give back 
to you all and just pour into you all who take on these duties that are very grand and very hard and difficult. If I can be quite honest, I think for me, it would almost be something like a, what, a professional consultant. I don't know. There's people who've done it. I've seen it, but that's kind of what my short-term goal is, is to make sure that we as professionals have um, enough so we can be vessels, if it, if that makes sense. So I, I totally agree with everyone here. And it's just, it's really great to hear everybody's story. Really awesome. So we'll move on to the last question. And I think this will bring us full circle here. This is like that wrap up question, you know, that everybody asks at the end to give your just like best advice. (laughs) So what I want for you all to do, and like I said, this doesn't have to be everybody, but if you could just take some time to kind of think about what is that one thing that you want someone to know before they are a a school psychologist or b someone who wants to do exactly what you would like to do? Yes, yeah, so I think um, mine's is like twofold. The first part of it is I would tell anyone who whatever goal you have professionally or personally, I would say let your let your actions match your goals and that you're moving in that direction. And so, like someone said earlier. And I want to address you directly. So who had mentioned that they wanted, was it Donette? You said you were look, wanting to leave the schools, but you, were, you weren't sure. And so you yeah. kind of stayed. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was me. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and not to call you out like that. I just wanted to remember so I could address you directly. But I, I, in that regard, I think, and I'm, I'm younger in my career, I would say, um, probably, I don't know. I only stayed in the schools one year after I finished my postdoctoral internship because I knew that I had, I knew that I didn't want to do that. Right. And so I kind of just told myself, I didn't necessarily have a blueprint. I'm the first person in my family to go to college um, in any regard to get a doctorate. And then my parents didn't even finish um, high school. So it was, it was scary. Right. But I kind of had this mindset that I'm going to have the time that I spend on a daily basis. I need that to be putting me in the direction of reaching my goal, which is I always wanted to be my own boss. I always I didn't want to tell anyone when I was going on vacation, when I was taking a bathroom break, the whole clocking in thing used to get on my nerves. So I always said, I have to make my moves match my goals long-term. And so what that meant was, you know, sticking to it and getting my doctorate, um, pushing myself to work in private practice before I finished my dissertation and my doctoral degree to see if I even liked that because I, I thought about it. So I was like, let me, let me try that and see, you know, let me figure out what my niche is and really push myself to let my actions on a daily basis match this goal of me getting in a position where I was my own boss and I was using everything that I learned on a regular basis to give me a career that I was really proud of and something that um, I could like own and, you know, say like, this is my life, my journey. And that can look very different. I, not to say that if I stayed in the schools that I wouldn't feel that same level of fulfillment, but I did kind of tell myself like, this is, this is your option and there's no other one. Like you want to start a business, you want to niche your expertise as a school psychologist. And there's so many ways to generalize it. Like if I could tell you guys all the things that I do that are monetizable in my business, just because of my credentials. And this was before I I got like my official doctorate. I only graduated last May, May of 2020. So I just got my little paper in the tube, you know, not so long ago, but just the 
being confident in what I knew, um, because we do so much as school psychologists, we have so much training that we have um, experienced and the role that we can play in the schools is so vast that think being, being confident in that and, and matching those moves to those goals, I think I would tell somebody like, be confident and don't be scared of sacrifice. Like, I can't even stress that enough. If something's gonna hurt for a little bit and I'm an athlete, so I'm used to paying for, for the common goal, it may hurt in the moment, but if it's going to take you where you need to go, don't be afraid or don't be scared of the sacrifice. So I think those are my two tips. Yeah, um, I'm just um, from an, uh, someone who's interested in going into academia, I would say to really try your best to be your authentic self on your interviews. So um, my research, like I mentioned, is really focused in on Black children and I I remember preparing for one of my first interviews um, and I was talking to one of my mentors and I was like, oh, should I like, you know, change how I word it? Should I say cultural or multicultural? And he was like, no, like, you know, speak your passion about, you know, you are interested in studying black children, why you're interested. And, and if that turns people off, then that's not the space for you. And I think that was really important because in academia, you want to really be able to pursue your passions and to um, not feel like you have to, you know, assimilate or things like that. Um, because academia, um, while, you know, there are lots of benefits, it can be a very isolating experience, um, especially for faculty of color. Um, you know, a lot of times for practitioners, um, you, you might be in a school where you're at least serving the population that, you know, that might look like you, even if all the staff doesn't. And academia, it's quite possible. So my first year, um, I didn't serve any students really that looked like me. And none of the faculty um, in the school psych program looked like me. And it felt very isolating. Now, I was able to do some things to change that. But um, what kind of helped me was the things that I was passionate about. So doing my research and getting into schools and doing those other things. But I, if I had one advice, I would just say to be your authentic self and, um, you know, find that space that's for you. And there are plenty of spaces, but don't feel like you have to kind of fit a mold. Yeah, pretty much everything Dr. Aston said, um, definitely be authentic. Um, my advice for someone that wants to go into the school psychology field is learn how to say no. They will keep throwing more and more things at you earlier on and you will get burned out faster. Um, it's okay to say no. It'll still be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, and network with others in education. Um, because we don't have that built-in communal network. We actually have to go out there and network with people. Um, and don't be afraid to do that. I'm so nervous um, walking up to people and like introducing myself and saying, hi, this is my name and this is what I do. But it just do it. Um, if you want to be a school psychology coordinator or even a special education director, my number one advice would be to not micromanage smart people. Um, I don't, and it works out well. And I've seen people that do, and it doesn't work out well for them. Um, definitely trust people, especially school psychologists. If you're, if you're overseas school psychologists, trust them. Um, 
they have either the same degree as you or higher, right? Um, be humble. I say I messed up all the time. Oops, I'm sorry. This is what I meant. Or I'm, I read the email and I did not respond. I'm so sorry. Um, and really pull others up with you. Um, there's, if I can find an opportunity to bring one of my, my friends in or someone that I know is going to have a hard time getting hired, um, of course I'm going to help them, right? There's, there's space for all of us at the top. And um, why not bring everyone with you? Um, but definitely that be authentic, be yourself. Um, if someone doesn't like you, that's not your problem, it's theirs. But definitely be authentic, be yourself and don't try to fit, like someone else said earlier, don't try to fit into someone's mold. Um, Izzy, I almost feel like you were peeking at my, my prep notes um, because I, one of my things is those those boundaries. Um, one of the things that I that I say so strongly is to keep those boundaries between yourself and your work, so that I am not always Miss Sanders. There are times when I am just I just want to be Danette. Um, when I leave work, I'm not writing reports until 10, 11, midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I'm not, I'm not checking emails. I get emails on, I, I check my email on Monday morning and I have emails that were sent at, at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. No, that's, that's my time. I, I need to be transparent about my boundaries. And that's something that I, I tell every single um, practicum student intern that I've ever had, like, make sure you have those boundaries in place. Um, because again, just to kind of echo what Izzy said, they will trample your boundaries and you will burn out. And so a lot of my, my colleagues and friends that I see are so tired very early on. Well, again, they're writing reports all night and they're not able to say, no, I can't do this. One of the things that, um, it's, it was a very difficult conversation, especially new to the district, but I was able to sit down with my supervisor and say, hey, these are what my boundaries are. And I refuse to compromise my life with my husband and with my daughter so that I could get work done. And if we ever get to the point where I am doing work after hours over the weekend, then we need to have a conversation about my caseload. And there's been one or two times when I was actually able to pull that card and say, hey, this is more than I can chew right now. I need some assistance. But then also being able to, on the other hand, extend that assistance to others. Um, the last thing I would say is to also echo, just to give grace um, to everyone that you work with. Um, there is so we're all coming from different backgrounds. We all have different challenges. And um, coming from the mental health background, we all know that you never know what people are dealing with. But just to really say, you never know what people are dealing with, with our kids, our teachers, our staff, just to extend that grace. Shana, tie us up, girl. 
I just wanted to touch on something that Izzy had also mentioned or tangentially related, the networking piece. I think it's so important to to find your community and to leverage your community, whether that's like the actual in-person community of the, the school psychologists that you work with in your district. But, you know, in my district, we're all a building place. We don't work at like a central office. So even then you can kind of feel like you're on an island by yourself. Um, but I think it's particularly important, especially as women of color who also have to take on multiple roles of not just being a school psychologist, but providing cultural support to, to students or, or other educators in the building, you know, who may be going through microaggressions or dealing with other difficulties in the building. It's so important to have a community of folks that you can turn to for networking, for support, for advice. And of course, the School Psych Sisters page is wonderful for that. I've definitely asked questions there, um, gotten opinions, and just gone there to vent when I feel like no one else could really understand um, the unique experience I was in as a Black woman who is also a school psychologist. So I think that community, especially when you're in your early career and trying to figure out what to do and, and the ins and outs and all that stuff, it's just so critical. Oh, I'm sorry. Just um, just career advice if you are interested in venturing outside of the school setting and into a more clinical setting. The one thing that I um, tell school sites, because I also supervise school sites who are looking to get their clinical license in South Carolina, um, is that enjoy the freedom. Um, because working in the setting outside of the school give you the freedom to address a lot of the issues um, and concerns that you're seeing in the schools that you don't have the time or the flexibility to be able to address when you're at school. Um, so I've, I've found that the, that working in private practice and um, being in the more clinical setting gives me the freedom to then address the issues that are being that I'm seeing that are happening at home that are affecting the child in their social environment as well as their educational environment. And it's really, um, really freeing. It has been really freeing for me to be able to address all of the things that I'm seeing and not just the things that are pertaining to the educational setting. All of this was just so excellent. And I am so thankful. I'm always astounded when I talk to women in the field, especially women of color in the field, because I always feel like I leave with some more information that I feel like had I not had the conversation, I would not have had. I think, I think this structure is just so very, very powerful. And I can't agree more with Shayna when she said that there's power in community. And I feel like just having you all here um, and talking about, you know, just sharing your stories. I think it's actually a form of community. And I guess it would be a form of community for me and for even you all, because I was noticing as we were talking that, you know, Shayna was actually getting stuff from this and you all were affirming each other in where you stood. And I know that um, just for me, it's been a pleasant experience. So thank you all so much for, for joining us. And to the audience, I really do hope that you all took something away from this wonderful conversation. And I will make sure to put these ladies' bios in the notes. So if you want to um, reach out to them directly, I hope that it, it is okay. Um, I'm pretty sure they would love to speak to you about what they do. All right. Thank you all so much again for listening and have a wonderful day.